Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Well, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, I have to tell you, it is exhausting, isn't it? I mean, this psychological warfare that is going on around the world and certainly within our own country has hit peak levels, and it really is draining. It's beyond draining. And I'll tell you something, one of the most draining parts of all of this, and I'm sure you're with me to some extent on this, are the number of individuals who just refuse to have a memory and remember that we are being yanked around on a constant basis on a leash to believe certain things and trust certain people and, oh, look, we're, we're being saved over here and look what good thing is happening over there. And then within about a day or so, people start to say, oh, wait, we all just got tricked again. Everybody just got tricked again. And again, I'm specifically bringing up our entire border. I find it beyond hysterical that, again, more and more people just continue to believe that Greg Abbott is a good person and that he's doing the right thing. Again, these governors are disgusting, and it's all of them. I, I said this, I said all of this a week ago. I mean, Mon Monday's show was exactly, I, I kicked it off with this same kind of comment, and here we are a week later and the same things are happening. And there's even more proof again that the border's wide open. It doesn't matter if there's cameras set up at Eagle Pass, quote-unquote, or not. It does not matter. A quarter mile down the road, the walls are wide open. And, and it, again, they're open all over the place. You have numerous individuals and numerous outlets openly talking about how it's wide open. And then you have others, and certainly those even in the mainstream, and even some of those in the so-called alternative media, not talking about how the border is wide open, and they're openly saying, oh no, you know, the National Guard's there, and they're helping out, and they're keeping them out, and look at all the razor wire, and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean jack. It doesn't mean anything. They're flying people into our country. I said it last week, it's getting repetitive and just exhausting. We would, we would physically see a change and a difference, but we aren't seeing that. That's not happening. So. I have to tell you, again, it's, it's so tiring and so exhausting to just hear all of these different individuals have amnesia. And then again, in a couple of days, they sort of wake out of their slumber and they go, oh yeah, that, that's right, we don't trust Abbott. That's right, we don't trust Fox News. We don't trust the government. Oh yeah, I remember now. I mean, pick a side. Pick one. Pick one. It's beyond evident, again, that they want some kind of a civil war. Again, whether that be an interagency civil war, which you've heard me bring up numerous times over the course of at least well over a year, that that I mean, if that's the war that they want, they they might end up getting one. But to not to not see that even the trucker convoy, if this thing is even happening, which I have no evidence that it is yet. I mean, again, I'm not seeing a bunch of trucks at the border, you know, honking their horns and doing whatever they're doing. I'm not seeing any of that yet, but why people would even buy into that is beyond me. It's just beyond me. Do they, have they not learned from January 6th? Have they not learned from any of that? Again, what, what do they actually think they're going to do when they get down there? Are they going to shoot people? Are they going to start shooting illegals who are coming over? 
Because again, if they're not doing that, then they're not really helping. They're just getting in the way. And again, I, I don't trust all of these so-called truckers that are going down there. Are they just going to speed up the process and load up their trucks with illegals? Are they working on behalf of the cartels? Are they going to be running drugs? Who knows? Probably all of the above. But don't worry. A guy who organized the whole thing has been on Alex Jones, and a guy who organized the whole thing has been on Fox News. And because that's happened, well, they're the good guys, and all of it's for good reasons. I'm telling you. None of this is good. None of it. If I was you, I would stay away from the border. I'd stay away. I'd lock and load wherever you live. Keep your head on a swivel. Be safe wherever you are. Not to mention, they're coming in through California. And they're coming in through Arizona and New Mexico. And they're being flown here from Christian organizations and Jewish organizations. They're coming in through Canada. They're coming by boat. From the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacifico. I mean, it does not matter. It doesn't matter. But everybody's got their attention on Texas, even today. A week and a half, two weeks after all this nonsense. Ooh, Greg Abbott sent a letter. Watch out. Now he means business. It's a charade. It's a charade. He's a Zionist. He's completely controlled. And again, if, if this exposes his treason, great. How do you hang a guy who, who sits around in a wheelchair all day long? How do you hang him for treason? It'd be an interesting thing to watch, I suppose. But there's no way he's one of us. There's no way he's a good guy. Hell, he spent the week in India, for God's sakes. He's a WEF-controlled Zionist. But I do have to hand it to all of the citizen journalists out there. And that's basically what we all are. If you have a story to tell and an angle and a perspective and you know people who are in particular avenues of particular professions and certainly different geographic locations, and you have a cell phone, you have the ability to communicate with endless people about what's really happening and what's really going on. And this is way more than what any news station would actually bring anybody, which is a very good thing, and it's one hell of a weapon. Again, there were numerous Q posts openly stating that. We are the news now. Be very careful with the kind of information that you're waking up to and the kind of information that you're disseminating. And I do believe, again, that from that angle, we are certainly winning that war. We're winning the information war. There is no doubt about it. Again, all of the resignations from all of these uh, journalist outlets, so to speak, mainstream outlets and tech companies and Numerous other just mainstream professions. I mean, the constant resignations are astounding. And again, I'm sure a lot of it is jab-related. There's no doubt about that. But at the exact same time, it's because their message is not getting through. And we're hearing them panic. Again, the major message at Davos a couple of weeks ago was misinformation and disinformation, that we have to do whatever we have to do to combat misinformation and disinformation. They wouldn't be saying that if they didn't know that they were losing the quote-unquote narrative war. If they, if, if they were actually winning, they would never even bring it up. But they're losing that. I mean, that's a very good thing. Again, take the border story. Border story is a perfect example. Oh, look, Fox News said that, you know, everybody, uh, everybody's fighting at the border and the bad guys aren't getting in and the National Guard is fighting with the Border Patrol and Biden said this, and Abbott said that, 
And then all it takes, all it takes is one Texan in his pickup truck going, here's Eagle Pass. And he drives a quarter of a mile down the road and he goes, there's a door with a chain on it. If I had a lock, I could break that. Or if I had a bolt cutter, I could break that instantly. Drives a little further down, goes, oh, look, that gate's wide open. In fact, there is no gate. Weird. And there are no soldiers anywhere either. And then again, while everybody's focused on a wall in Texas in one specific area, people aren't paying attention to the fact that the airports are filling up with illegals. I mean, Ben Burkwam was in Chicago the other day in O'Hare Airport, where they have an entire section basically walled off with this sort of black see-through paper. And it's just filled with beds and illegals. And it stinks. I mean, it looks like it smells. But even he was just like, this. it absolutely reeks. And unfortunately, in the future, you're not even going to be allowed to have a camera when you're walking through O'Hare, certainly within that particular section, in another week or so. So saith Joe Biden and whomever else. Again, human trafficking has been legalized. And frankly, it's been legalized by every single governor. Now again, you know, I'm, I'm not dooming here. I'm just, uh, all I'm doing is thinking out loud. What is it going to take to get rid of all of these people in our country? I'm not just talking about illegals. I'm talking about all of these governors, all of these mayors, all of these council people. The corruption is just everywhere. And it's over flipping whelming. It's overwhelming. What is going to have to happen? There has to be a removal of almost every single politician you can possibly imagine in the United States. And where do you take them? Where do you put them all? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I'd like to think you could just scoop them up in a C-230, fly out into the ocean, dump the back open, and then just tip the nose of that airplane right up in the air and let them all roll out like bowling pins. But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But whatever it is, it's got to be something that creates a domino effect that reminds individuals that wherever they are, they're not going to get away with it. And it's going to have to be something of epic proportions. It's going to have to be something that we've never seen before. And we're going to have to see it because we deserve to see it. Whatever consequences come down the line here and whatever ultimate accountability takes place, we've got to see it because this is beyond disgusting. And it's just tiring. I mean, I don't know really how else to put it. It's just tiring. And I know that I'm not the only one that feels that way. I mean, again, like I said at the top here, the constant psychological warfare that's going on with all of us right now, it really is like what is between our ears is our own prison. And it is, again, it's, it's an everyday thing. You can walk away from it as much as you want, but you understand this just like I do. You walk away from this kind of information on a constant basis, you're going to feel like you're left out in the cold all by yourself to some extent. Because we know that this is a war. And when you stop paying attention to real intel and real information about what's really happening, you feel like you've been homesick for at least a week and you've missed all of math class. Again, I've, <laughs> I've used that example before, that if you were like me when you, you know, you'd stay home from school and you were sick when you were a kid in grade school, of all of the classes, it seemed like math class was the one 
where when you came back after missing multiple days of it, you felt like you were listening to a foreign language. You felt like you were listening to your math teacher speak in tongues, and you couldn't make heads or tails of what they were saying. It was like one of those subjects that you just had to stay in it all of the time, and if you dare missed a single moment of it, then you wouldn't know what was happening next. I feel like, I feel like that with, with all of this information too, but again, it's, uh, it's exhausting. Again, there's all those Civil War maps, which I'm sure you've seen that are bouncing around social media and a bunch of people going, yeah, you know, we're getting the band back together and look at the division from the North and the South and this is the way it needs to be. And then you've got these Civil War movie, this Civil War movie coming out and all this pre-programmed nonsense. I'm telling you, these script writers got it down pat. And it's, uh, again, it, it just wears on the mind. It's like sandpaper on the brain after a while. It just really gets exhausting. But either way, I just feel like everybody's just kind of sitting around waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like something's got to happen here. Again, I'm not saying it'd be a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know what it would be. But something's got to happen that, you know, we haven't seen before. Something else. So I don't recommend getting involved at the border. I truly don't. I, I think that that, again, you know, y you, can, you can wring that dry in that entire scenario basically from multiple angles as much as one wants. L let me give you a very quick example. You have individuals who know that what is going on at the border because we see it with basic cell phone footage from your average citizen that they're still coming over. Okay, we know that. We also know that there's people in fatigues who claim to be National Guard, and they are there. Great. What are they doing? Well, they're still letting people in. What's Border Patrol doing? Same thing. They're not turning anybody back. These people are coming into our country. Now you've got these alleged truckers being run by God knows who, uh, and, and apparently enough individuals going down there, and again, to do what? What are they going to be doing? having parades, carrying more signs, shouting at the top of their lungs, getting involved in nose-to-nose -nose with National Guard or Border Patrol? Is that going to work out for people? What are the cartels on the other side of the river or the other side of the border going to do? Are they going to fire over and shoot over at us? They shoot against one another all of the time on a night-in, night-out basis in Mexico. What would keep them from just turning their guns north and just shooting people right across the border. Probably nothing. But again, then what would happen? What would be the reaction after that? And of course, do the politicians know that this is what's likely to occur? You'd have to assume that they've wargamed this entire thing out, that they've played multiple scenarios and multiple angles to try to get some response from somebody. They don't care where it comes from, I don't think. I don't think they care if it's us. I don't, care, I don't think they care if it's them in Mexico. I don't think they're interested. Because again, as the distraction goes and as the PSYOP goes, people are paying attention to that right now instead of paying attention to what's happening in their own backyards, in their own states and towns where they live. The fact that schools are closing down all over the United States, which is a good thing, except for the fact that they're filling them with illegals. And I have more news on that that I'll bring up here in just a little bit from North Carolina. In fact, it's in the same county and same town as where my aunt lives, and she was previously on the show, but that right there again, it's absolutely amazing. They're taking these vacant buildings and they're going, yep, 
you know, it's it's not for the it's not for the so-called handicapped kids anymore. It's just for illegals, and uh, you know, it's an intake center and a refugee welcome center, whatever the hell you want to call it. And that's just an ever-present thing. I mean, that's one of these things again that some people aren't paying attention to that's happening all across the United States in every state. But you know, again, everybody's being yanked around back to Texas and the border end. That's where the biggest crisis is. Well, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And again, as I said earlier, the traitors in our own country, when are we going to see these people hang? When are we actually going to see something happen to these individuals? Let me give you an example here. This is from Big League Politics from earlier this week. It's titled, Revealed, Ben Shapiro Contributed Over $100,000 to Migrant Trafficking Organization in 2022. He's basically a self-described Israeli spy. Isn't that illegal? I mean, I fully understand that most politicians at this point are Israeli spies, but even so, how on earth is he allowed to just walk free? I mean, we know why, but you get what I'm saying. The organization is specifically the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, or HIAS. And it says, neoconservative anti-Trump commentator Ben Shapiro gave between 100000 and 500000 during the fiscal year of 2022 to that organization. Former Utah U.S. Senate candidate Sam Parker revealed in an ex-post, it says, in addition to receiving support from globalists like Shapiro, he's Jewish, HIAS also is on the federal dole to resettle dangerous migrants from third world countries into the U.S. to accelerate the nation's demographic destruction. These migrant trafficking operations are driven by bribes to globalist officials and not legitimate humanitarian need. No kidding. Again, when you have information like this that's just so widely spread and published and out there, and there's no denial of it, of course, he's not denying any of this. He's not even going to be asked. I mean, when, when is the shoe going to drop on this? When are people like him and the individuals who have donated to these organizations that are clearly moving humans from point A to point B illegally, it just can't get any more blatant. I mean, it's right in front of everyone's face. Again, the miscarriage of justice alone is, is a psychological operation here that is beyond demoralizing, is it not? And, and we know that that's part of the issue here. We know that that's a giant on purpose. Show the American people that there's a massive miscarriage of justice on a day-in and day-out basis. You'll never get a fair shake. You'll never get a fair trial. You'll be accused of everything. We can put you in jail for anything. Uh, and if we can't do that, well, then we'll make you destitute. We'll take all the money that we can from you and we'll beat you down through lawfare and we'll beat you down this way and that way. We'll beat you down through the education system, the indoctrination system, and before you know it, you'll just submit because you'll have no other choice. That's what they're counting on, but we can't give them that. We have to make these people and we have to make these organizations that they operate bankrupt. We have to do it, and we have to do it with our lack of participation. Again, let me give you a couple more examples. Of course, everybody knows about the Trump defamation trial regarding that crazy Carol woman, that old dried up tube sock or whatever the hell she looks like. She's disgusting. But either way, if he was really 
raping her, or did rape her, which we know he didn't, there's no way in hell he did, shouldn't he be in jail for rape? I mean, instead of having to pay out allegedly, which I bet he doesn't even pay a dime, $83 million? $83 million for defamation because during a trial he was saying whatever, he was saying that she was a liar? So you're exercising your freedom of speech, your First Amendment right, and then you get sued for defamation, and then he has to pay her out $83 million. Again, if he actually assaulted her and sexually assaulted her, shouldn't he be on trial for sexual assault, and shouldn't he be in jail if that actually happened? Seems like it. But isn't that funny how nobody's really paying attention to that aspect of it? They're like, oh yes, he assaulted her, and clearly, because now uh, he defamed her, that that's exactly why he's guilty, and everybody knows it, so let's move on to the next story. No, if he really raped a person, he should be in jail for rape. But he didn't rape anybody. Again, screaming rape when you weren't raped is a crime in this country. So when is that Carol lady going to get hers? When is she going to be arrested? And the conflicts of interest in that entire trial and her entire legal team, not to mention the judge, is beyond absurd. This is widely known also, but again, it's clearly planned demoralization. This is part of it. Let me give you another example with a little piece of audio here to play. Georgia, the state, again, not a good state, not well led, all criminals running that state, clearly, not to mention the voting fraud and the Brian Kemp and a thousand other things. And remember his daughter's boyfriend and how he's dead? How he was vaporized by a, uh, a car bomb? Too many questions were getting asked about the stolen 2020 election, and then wouldn't you know it, boom, bam, his daughter's boyfriend is dead. You know, that middle-of-the-day, side-of-the-road car bomb, kaboom, just like that. No questions asked. Sweep it under the rug. Most people forget that. Well, here's Georgia yet again, and what they're doing is they're falling right in line with Florida. So much so that if you criticize anybody who's Jewish or you criticize Israel, well, you could find yourself getting fined or you could find yourself in jail. So here's what this says before the audio. It says Georgia is under attack by a new bill called HB 30, which would make the state exactly like Florida's HB 269. And of course, they want to pass this because there have been protests in front of Jewish temples and a thousand other things. We're being attacked all the time and we don't know why. Well, we have a pretty good idea as to why. We know why. And it's not new. It's actually a historic fact because, well, this is what happens. They enter countries and then they destroy them because they like doing this. It's a pattern of behavior among some of them. So give this audio a quick listen here in three, two, one bill that would define anti-Semitism is pending in the state legislature. Supporters of House Bill 30 say it would protect Jewish people from anti-Semitic attacks. This past summer, an anti-Semitic group demonstrated outside Macon's Temple Beth Israel. The deputies said they shouted obscene language through a bullhorn. The bill passed a key committee Tuesday. Rabbi Elizabeth Bahar testified before committee members. Fariha Abra sat down with Bahar to learn more about why she testified. Anti-Semitism has always been something that is hard to define. But it's something that must be highlighted, according to Rabbi Elizabeth Bahar. Since my congregation this summer were victims of 
anti-Semitic activity, and that activity was has been ongoing since then in several other incidents, which I cited in my testimony. I thought it imperative that we fully endorse and support the efforts of the broader Jewish community to aid law officials in carrying out their duties. On Tuesday, Bahar went to Atlanta to testify in support of House Bill 30. Co-sponsoring the bill is John F. Kennedy, who Bahar says personally invited her. There were statistics about how anti-Semitism was growing. She says she spent all of Sunday preparing her testimony. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition, Bahar says, is what supporters for the bill want included. What it doesn't promise is that you're not allowed to intimidate me so that I can go and pray in my house, my house of prayer and feel safe and secure. Bahar says she went to testify in Atlanta because all Jewish Georgians are affected. Well, I hope that it, it passes and I hope that it leads toward broader education of elected officials and law enforcement um, individuals to further understand what is anti-Semitism, what does it look like, and how can it best be addressed. In Megan Fadi Hubbard, 13 WMAC News. House Bill 30 is still awaiting votes from the Senate and House for approval. So far, no vote has been scheduled in the full Senate. The double standard is over flipping whelming. I think we have a pretty good idea as to how they're going to vote if that ends up going to an actual vote. Because let's face it, they're all bought and paid for. They're all blackmailed. That's why they're there. That's why they hold those positions. The complete erosion of the Constitution, I mean, at this point, it practically doesn't even exist. It's been infringed and violated and people have wiped their backsides with it so frequently. And in particular, I should say from the very people who claim to take an oath to protect it, which clearly they don't. But you hurl a couple of names at some people and then all of a sudden it has to be against the law. The next move, of course, will be that it'll become a hate crime. That if you say anything to anybody that offends them or whatever, then you're going to be arrested for a hate crime. I'm not going to read it again because I've already read it at least three or four times. But the fact is, is that Dr. Joseph Goebbels was right. He said these individuals are not going to stop, including the politicians who support them, that they won't quit until calling them names is punishable by death. That's their ultimate goal. One little inroad at a time. One little law written at a time and signed and passed, and there you have it. One little fine at a time, and then it starts to send a message and continues to demoralize people that you can't exercise your First Amendment, you can't stand up for yourself. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me unless you're a Jew, in which case, you know, you get thrown in prison and then hung by the neck until dead because you're an anti-Semite. People just have to keep standing firm on all of this. I really don't know what else to say. They got to stand firm. They have to stand firm against this kind of stuff. It is demoralizing. It is exhausting. But I mean, that's the point. They play the long game. They've been doing this for centuries. They know exactly what they're doing. Hell, they've been doing it for thousands of years. That's why they've been kicked out of all the countries they've been kicked out of. It's a historic fact. But again, they know what they're doing. So there's that. Okay. Also, again, more revealing information. When things are being censored, that usually means you should start paying attention to it. Uh, Europa the Last Battle had a Twitter account, or an X account, rather, and it too now has been banned from X. Rather revealing. They just flat out block the entire channel and it doesn't exist anymore. Well, 
That should tell people something, shouldn't it? Maybe you should watch that documentary. Maybe you should take the time and watch it again. Who knows? Might actually learn something. Maybe a student in a school who still attends and God knows why could come across that documentary and watch the entire thing. Maybe do a little report on it. Maybe bring that documentary into school. Maybe show it in class. It's all tiring. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I sound exhausted. It just the miscarriage of justice again is is knowingly demoralizing, and and they are fully aware of that. Again, I'm not going to play the audio here because if I did, everybody would hate me more than maybe usual. But either way, if you want to scream or actually hear your IQ drop, I highly recommend checking out the nine minute plus audio on Bill Maher, on Real Time with Bill Maher this past Friday, I think it was, or Saturday, whenever the hell that show airs. Um, He had on, and you can't make this up, he had on Seth MacFarlane, Adam Schiff, and Stephen A. Smith. And the four of them were talking about Trump and Biden. And I have got to tell you, it was the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life, and that's saying something. I've heard some stupid shit in my day, but that took the taco. The four of them talking about Donald Trump and three of them or two of them, certainly Adam Schiff and Seth MacFarlane, actually praising Joe Biden is beyond nuts. It's beyond nuts. And we can't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that Adam Schiff, once friends with uh, political donor Ed Buck, who would scoop up the homeless and get them all drugged up on crack, and then have sex with them until they died. That Adam Schiff, not only being his friend, that apparently no one brings up ever when Adam Schiff is in public, which you would think would be the only thing people would bring up. They also, of course, don't mention, and we shouldn't forget, that Adam Schiff did the same thing with a child. He had sex, allegedly, with a child to death. The kid was on drugs, the kid died in front of him as he's having sex with him, standard hotel, and then there you have it. So there's that old story. But why anybody would listen to Adam Schiff about anything, let alone let him speak in public about anything, without mentioning that first and frequently is beyond me. Again, a lot of this is well-known information. Just the constant miscarriage of justice here. And the blatant hypocrisy is, uh, yeah, it's exhausting. Okay, I'm going to stop it there regarding that whole rant. But I don't know. I don't know how to get over it. (laughs) I think, I just think that the only way to get over it is that we have to see something that we've never seen before, like Greg Abbott and Adam Schiff hanging side by side from a noose. You know, things like that. That's about the only way. Kicking the can down the road and People trying to make money on having the quickest tweet or XYZ. I'm sorry. This isn't the solution going forward. It's just not. All right. So let me put that just to the side here for a minute, but still sort of a miscarriage of justice. Uh, The Crumbly trial. Let me get into this. Okay. Day one was interesting. Day two was equally as strange. My overall summary, I think, and and comment before I get into some of the specifics is this. This is the defenses to lose. This entire case is the defenses to absolutely lose. On day one, 
uh, Kristen Carr was there, and she was openly stating that the jury looked bored. And I, I believe that without a doubt, because what the prosecution was doing is they were communicating with individuals, a few of which were on the stand, one of which who was an employee. And they were basically just kind of going through the emotional aspect of the whole thing. There really wasn't, again, any finger pointing at the parent. It was just emotions. And then they'd say, oh, look, the Crumbleys put um, you know, both of the parents put video footage of them shooting at the gun range and, you know, a picture of the gun that they just bought and how excited they were and blah, 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 and a number of other things. I mean, that's not unusual. People do that. There are entire YouTube channels dedicated to that, and they make money doing that. So it's not, it's not a new thing. They still don't have Jennifer Crumbly, or even the father for that matter, on anything. In fact, they played the 911 call from the father calling 911 about his miss about his missing gun and that he was told either via text message or whatever that there's an active shooter situation at the high school the dad sounded very very panicked and very concerned and not in a way that would indicate that he had anything to hide he certainly didn't he was openly dialing 911 because he wanted the police to find his son because he thought that his son might have their gun. And he only, again, pieced these things together because a conference took place moments before inside of the building with both he, his wife, and their son, and the counselor, of course. And then moments after that is when. The shooting started to take place. And then, of course, moments after that, he realized that his gun was gone. Again, th this sounded like a concerned father who was concerned for the well-being of his son. And actually, there was some speculation that they actually believed his parents that he would kill himself. Once they heard that there was a shooting taking place, and once they realized that their gun was gone, they actually thought he was a harm to himself, not other people which sort of falls in line with what the counselor has openly stated and testified to in the past, although not directly in this trial, but in previous testimony, he openly said, I didn't think he'd hurt other people. I thought he would hurt himself. Well, if that's true, then that breaks policy also because he shouldn't have sent him back to class. Either way, on day one, it was a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, attempting to pull at people's heartstrings. Again, they were playing the audio, not just from the 911 call that the father made, but also, uh, like I said earlier, the video footage of the, of the gun being shot inside the range. They're, they're doing that for an auditory effect and to elicit an emotional response so that they can hear this heart-wrenching testimony from employees and then at the exact same time hear the sound of a gun being shot. So... The prosecution knows what they're doing from an emotional standpoint, but the facts just don't sit. So I'll say this then. On day one, they talked with a teacher who was wounded, and she even openly stated that she was having trouble with the nightlock system. And I think I described the nightlock system in a previous episode, but again, she was openly stating that she was having trouble with that. And that's apparently standard procedure within all of the buildings, uh, or all, certainly all of the classrooms and all of the areas that have doors and locked doors. 
But either way, she didn't have any students at the time, and she was openly stating again that uh, she didn't even know that she had been shot. I mean, she felt sort of a, a, a warm, a warm feeling on her left arm, and then looked behind her, and there was broken glass in the window behind her, and X, Y, Z. But either way, um, there was her testimony, which again she was crying on the stand, and rightfully so. And then you had the the female gun seller, who who sold the father the gun, and they they owned as a family they owned three guns. There was a nine millimeter, a twenty two caliber magazine loaded pistol, and then they had a twenty two Derringer. And and again, that was it. Uh, again, they were trying to hang up the father. It seemed like, although the father's not on trial here yet, but it, it seems like they're certainly trying to blame him more than potentially the mother. They were hanging him up on the guns not being properly registered. That within a certain time frame, after filling out the paperwork and after taking home the gun, that there's something else that he has to send in, apparently, at least in the state of Michigan, in order to finally register the gun. Seems a bit strange to me, because I've never even heard of that. I've purchased guns in two states in the United States, and not once did I experience such a thing. But either way, that was beyond strange. And then they talked with an ATF agent who was assigned to the, uh, to, to the actual scene rather quickly, although he was some distance away at the time. But uh, he ended up, again, getting there and then starting to assess the situation and communicate with a number of individuals, and, and he was there also. This was a point that was brought up, though, in our text thread between Jesse, Kristen, Bobby, and myself, and it's that, isn't it odd? That a lot of these people who are testifying on the stand, in particular the individuals who are in law enforcement positions, are not in the same position anymore that they used to be in when the actual crime took place. They're all, they basically all have completely different positions now. So it seems a bit strange, but uh, again, is it a certain kind of promotion because they're not good at their previous job, or they weren't good at their previous job, or... Are they trying to hide something, or is the organization trying to protect them? Most certainly. That's most certainly the case to some extent, I think. But then day two rolled around. And day two was a bit strange also, and this is really where it became evident that it was the defenses to lose. In day two, Shannon Smith is the defense lawyer's uh, name, and she's, she's odd. And that, that's putting it mildly also. She has very uh, interesting idiosyncrasies, we'll say, and certain verbal tics and habits. She apologizes to the judge on a constant basis. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, judge. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I just, I'm just sorry. I, I don't know where I am. And she's all over the place. She's just all over the place. Uh, I would say there was this one excellent point that she made, although it got, you know, it kind of got lost in, in her verbal communication and, and her mannerisms, but she stacked up all of the Facebook and text messages that had existed between the crumbly parents, and there weren't any posts, not one. I mean, we're talking like a stack that's almost six feet high. Uh, Again, she had these on the table, and even the judge told her to take them off the table because it looked like they were all going to fall down, which was a bit embarrassing because, again, I was thinking the exact same thing when I was watching. I was like, those are all going to fall on the floor, and you're going to look like a bigger idiot than you already are. But either way, in all of those communications between the parents, not once 
did they say anything to one another about their son either hurting himself or wanting to hurt other people? Not one. Again, if they knew that their son was going to hurt somebody or that they would even communicate about that or even joke about it, like, gee, I hope he doesn't kill somebody someday because he's such a strange kid. I mean, they, they didn't even say that. It didn't even get brought up once. But unfortunately, again, because of Shannon Smith's uh, mannerisms and, and the way that she behaves, unfortunately, the message can get lost in her, in her defense, which is too bad. But hopefully she revisits this again in the closing statements because that's where she's got to hammer that home. So there was that. There was also this, of course. The person who was on the stand for the vast majority of the day was the forensics expert. And this was the individual who was responsible for obtaining the technology and the communication devices that everybody had and then going through those communication devices and those communications back and forth between the parents and their son and other people and XYZ. And again, one of the major points that got brought up was that the defense lawyer brought up, although it, again, it got mixed up based on her poor mannerisms and her poor uh, verbal tics and behavior. But either way, one of the points that got brought up was is that the only person that Ethan Crumbly communicated with regarding potentially hurting himself or someone else was his friend. And his friend not once communicated with anybody else about Ethan potentially doing something that would harm someone. And at no point did the parents know that Ethan was communicating with his friend about this, and at no point did the parents know that the friend knew this. And again, like I said, the friend didn't even bother telling the parents, the friend didn't bother telling anybody who worked in the building. And even the people who saw Ethan's behavior and even those who saw him bring actual bullets to school, those students didn't do anything either. They didn't tell anybody anything either. Again, this is the defenses to lose. This whole case is up to the defense to actually lose. So here's what Kristen said, and then I'll leave it at that until, of course, Monday, which is where the trial picks back up. Kristen stated that the restorative practices director who still works in the building, Pamela Fine, that she was in the courtroom, I think on day two, and that the counselor, Sean Hopkins, was also in the courtroom, and that one or both of them have been subpoenaed by the defense in order to, again, testify. And, uh, and that's going to get real interesting because they're going to have to hammer those people because of the policy. They're going to have to hammer them on their lack of communication with the parents over the course of, again, the entire year of 2021. Because that entire year, they knew, you know, everybody knew who Ethan Crumbly was for the most part, but they weren't communicating with the parents. And I can't, I can't mention this enough. As you've heard me state, in the business of education, the number one complaint that parents have when they're called into a conference by teachers and or counselors and or administration is they always say, why didn't I hear about this sooner? That's what the parents say regarding their own child. Well, the moment that this happened, why didn't you tell me? The moment that this occurred, why didn't you pick up the phone and call us? It's their number one complaint, and they're right. They're right. All of the time, you will hear that exact thing come out of the mouths of parents 
when a conference is finally scheduled and they finally get face-to-face with school employees. We should have known about this sooner, they'll say. Yeah, because inside of the school building, they're always trying to kick the can down the road. They're always trying to manage it in-house. They're always trying to pretend to be the parent instead of contacting the family and saying, this is your responsibility. This child is your responsibility. If they're falling asleep, that's your problem. You know, there must be something happening in the home that's causing them to fall asleep. Are they on drugs? Are they, uh, you know, are, are they living in an unsafe environment where it's too loud? Uh, are they being neglected in another way, X, Y, Z? You know, wh- why are their grades poor? A thousand things. But the school actually believes, again, that they can be the parent. They think that they can manage and handle all of the students that exist in these environments away from the parents even knowing anything. It's beyond disgusting. And again, I, you know, I, I brought up this story before, and I'll mention it one more time because I think it's relevant, is that I remember having a conference with a black grandmother who was the legal guardian of a female black student that I had in middle school. And this female black student was very quiet. And when I say quiet, I mean deathly quiet. She said nothing in class, which again was fine. But that kind of behavior for me specifically was always suspicious. Why are you so quiet? Why do you not say anything? Are you shy or are you scheming? Are you shy or are you quiet, you know, sort of quietly hating on the people around you? What, ex- what exactly are you doing? And what I saw was, is I saw her in my class not say anything. And then I witnessed her in the hallways, hanging out with very bad students and just some bad people. And then watching her actually make fun of, point at, and laugh at particular students who clearly didn't have it coming. And basically sort of take on these quiet, bullying-like behaviors. Now, of course, you, you dug into that particular student's past. Why, why were they behaving that way? Some people would say, well, they're behaving that way because it's middle school, Sean, and that's the way that middle school kids are. That's, that's actually not true. There's always something else that's happening. It has nothing to do with the age, and it really has nothing to do with even the building per se. It has to do with what's going on in the home. As it turns out, mom and dad were both in prison. Shocking, I know. But mom and dad were both in prison, and grandmother was raising her, and grandma, grandma was no spring chicken. She was an old woman, and she too was taking care of her autistic, I think it was her autistic uh, grandson or granddaughter who was younger than the student that I had. And the student that I had, I believe, was in either sixth or seventh grade, seventh grade if memory serves. Again, this, this would be indicative of, of the kinds of behaviors that I was witnessing. So the point that I brought up to the grandmother in this parent conference, where all the other teachers were around, including the actual counselor, who was a complete buffoon, and uh, again, absent-minded and, and a very old woman as well, is that I looked at the grandmother when it was my turn to talk, and I tried to go last. Because I knew that what I was going to say was probably going to matter more than what the others were going to say, not only because of the subject matter that I taught, being health education, but my observational skills were better than most, um, certainly most others in the building. And I looked at her and I said, it's a pleasure to meet you. I said, this might be a bit alarming, 
I said, but I've witnessed, I'm going to tell you exactly what I've witnessed regarding your granddaughter here. And I appreciate you, you know, you, you telling us about the home life and, and her family and what's gone on throughout the course of her life. And that, that certainly makes a lot of sense based on what I'm specifically seeing. I described everything to the grandmother that I just described to all of you. And, uh, and, and the grandmother looked at me and her eyes got big and she said, wow. She said, that's really surprising. She said, I had no idea. I had no idea that, that, that she was actually behaving like that. I said, well, she's clearly acting out in particular areas where she knows she's, she thinks she's not going to be seen or get caught. And then on the other hand, she's behaving in particular settings and in, in, certainly in the classroom setting where, again, she would have more eyes on her and certainly more student eyes on her. I said, but it's in the hallways and in the free time, so to speak, and in the lunchroom and these other areas where you can observe a student and actually see who they are and how they behave when they're away from a, so, you know, a so-called authority figure. And that right there, again, can be very indicative of, of maybe something that is going on either inside of the home or some trauma that they've experienced or whatever it may be. And again, she was, she was blown away. She wasn't upset with me at all. The conference ended, and she looked at me in front of everybody, and she said, uh, Mr. Brooks, thank you again for, for mentioning that to me. I really appreciate it. And I said, yeah, no problem. I said, I think she's a good kid. And, and she's certainly a, a pretty decent student. Her grades are starting to slip in all of her classes a little bit, but that's why we're having this conference. I said, but uh, talk to her about her behavior and tell her again that if she continues to pick on people in school, she's going to be held accountable for that because it's something that I'm starting to witness. And again, I, I didn't tell her this, but I, I stopped just shy of saying apparently no one else is witnessing this. So either no one else is paying attention and, you know, whatever else. But I'm certainly not making this up. And again, she looked at me and she thanked me in front of everybody and said, that's really interesting. I'm definitely going to have a talk with her. I said, perfect. Thank you. And then the conference ended and everybody left on good terms until I was head heading back to my classroom. And wouldn't you know it, but the counselor walks up behind me. Again, she was an old drunk, but she walks up behind me. And she, and she openly says to me, she doesn't touch me or anything, but she openly said to me uh, to get my attention, she said something like, hey, Sean. I said, yeah. She said, what you said in that, in that conference was very inappropriate. And I mean, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. She said that. I said, excuse me? She said, you, you shouldn't have mentioned any of that. That was just really, really inappropriate. And then I spun on her because I had nothing to lose and I just didn't care. And I looked at her and I said, maybe if you did your job, we wouldn't be here right now. Maybe if you communicated with this student about what was going on in the house, and maybe if you actually spent some time talking with the teachers before a conference like this takes place about what we're witnessing regarding this particular student, something that gets said in a parent conference wouldn't shock you. I said, because the grandmother appreciated it. Did you not hear her compliment me for bringing it up because she had no idea this was happening? She's the person who has to know about this. And you could have known it if you'd have just asked me, but you didn't know. She goes, well, it was just really inappropriate. There, I mean, you, there were other ways of, and I was like, shut up, get out of here. And then she just, she walked away and that was it. Again, this is the kind of incompetence that exists within these environments. And I'm not pulling back in the slightest when I say these schools existing is a national security threat to our country. 
it continues to be. Curriculum aside, and that's bad enough. All the lying, as you've heard me say a million times, all of the, all of the lying regarding all of that is, is bad enough. But the mind frame of the people who work within these buildings and, and them believing that what goes on in the building is the best for everybody in the community and what will we do if we don't have these school buildings? Well, you'll have a better environment is what you'll have. You'll have a better community. You'll have individuals probably communicating more on a productive level at a higher dimension if these school buildings didn't exist. Because Billy's mom over here and Billy's family and dad and whoever else will probably communicate with Sally's family over here and they'll talk about what they're teaching each other in the home. Because that's not happening among individuals, again, who attend public school. All, all those families are talking about is the gossip that goes on within the building. They're not talking about what they're doing in the home environment to teach their children. That could happen. That could be the future that we're all waiting for. I, I certainly pray that that's the case, and I hope so. But these buildings can't exist. They just can't exist. Kristen also sent me this. This is rather interesting. And again, I, I bring that up because it's, it's beyond indicative of the entire Ethan Crumbly scenario. Same thing, same exact thing. As it turns out, uh, the Oxford School District in Oakland County, Michigan, is one of the top homeschooling districts. And it, it, it should be. It certainly should be. It says statewide districts build the Michigan Department of Education for the equivalent of over 3,400 full-time students, FTE, in the 2018 to 2019 school year. That's more than 7,300 homeschool students participated in programs that would have generated $27.2 million for the districts. Now, this is old data. You have to understand that that number's probably gone through the roof. Again, these counties are billing the state for homeschooling students and the state's paying them because they're losing students. I mean, it's, it's a criminal organization. Without this criminal organization, this kind of money exchanging hands won't take place. But they know, again, that they're losing students. All of these districts know this, and the state knows this, and the state politicians know this, which is why they're making different laws and different proposals and revising existing laws to essentially compensate educators in the same way that they would be paid while being in a brick-and-mortar environment. They're apparently doing this in Michigan regarding online learning now. Because you have to keep in mind, 2020 was that Trojan horse. And what that did also, which the enemy wasn't expecting, is it gave everybody a little taste of heaven when it came to actual learning. And that, oh, look, I don't need to be in a brick-and-mortar environment, and oh, look, I don't need to sit in rows like a slave, and oh, look, I don't need to have some dummy at the front of the room acting like he knows what he's talking about or she knows what she's talking about. I can actually learn for free, surf the internet, find answers to my questions, ask more questions, have the freedom to read anything I want, and read in silence without, you know, having tater tots thrown at the back of my head. They got a taste of heaven there. And once they tasted it, they now know, because that seed has been planted, whether it takes root or not, and actually grows is another matter. 
But the important and I would say unforgettable piece is the fact that they've all had that taste. They all know that when they get older as an adult, that's the way that you learn. You don't run to a brick and mortar environment and ask someone, whether they be your age, younger, or older, to answer a question for you. You have to figure out how to do that on your own. And this is again why all of these schools are losing funds because of a lack of participation, which is fantastic. Again, why anybody would send their children to the Oxford environment after an actual murder, multiple murders, is beyond me. It just defies all logic as far as I'm concerned. But again, some people are stuck with it. Some people feel like they don't have a choice. But either way, if you're interested again in catching up and certainly watching live regarding the Crumbly trial, I really do think that the testimony of the school employees can be some of the most damning. That really is, is where it's going to put the vast majority of the blame on them. And I, and I, I, I can't possibly imagine the prosecution asking them any questions that are going to work out for the prosecution. I mean, if they do, it all roads, again, pretty much lead back to the school employees not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So we'll see what happens. But either way, if you want to watch that again, I'm sure it'll be back on YouTube on Monday on the Law and Crimes Trials or Law and Crime Trials channel is what it's called. So there you go. And I think it starts again either around 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, somewhere in there. So I'm going to keep watching it, and uh, I'll keep taking notes, and then I'll keep updating everybody here on all of that. Okay. Moving on, another education story here. Again, I mentioned this earlier. This is from The Blaze. My apologies for the reference. It is titled, School District's Plans to Convert Special Needs School into Migrant Resettlement Facility, County Commissioner warns. Again, you talk about demoralizing people and certainly demoralizing individuals who are in the matrix. This is certainly one of the ways you would do that. Not to mention those of us who aren't in the matrix, it's still demoralizing because, frankly, you're turning old abandoned schools or even existing schools into hotels for illegals. What could go wrong? New Hanover County Schools in North Carolina, which is where Wilmington is located, they have announced here, it says, that in November, the district plans to shutter the Career Readiness Academy at Mosley, which, which serves students with special needs. It says, according to Scalise, during a meeting last week, the NHC Board of Education and NHC School Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust stated that the shuttered school might be replaced with a newcomer's school, quote-unquote. Ah, that's what they're calling it now. Not illegal aliens, newcomers. Scalise explained that despite the misleading name, the school would ultimately amount to a migrant resettlement facility. He slammed the district for attempting to close down the school, forcing its students to relocate to other facilities in the county. Quote, Mosley is a one-of-a-kind public school in New Hanover County that offers custom-tailored education to local students who require special learning. Newcomers' school, quote-unquote, may be called schools, but they are more akin to migrant resettlement and assimilation facilities, Scalise wrote in a recent op-ed published by the Carolina Journal. Quote, the purported mission of these facilities is not to educate students in the traditional sense, but to allegedly help entire immigrant and refugee families integrate 
into the local community where they are relocated. The county commissioner, Dane Scalise, continued and said the undeniable truth is that a newcomer's school is outside the purview of our education system and would rapidly become a magnet to migrant families from outside of the county. He called on the district to focus its priorities on serving students who live in the county. Scalise noted that another North Carolina school district, uh, Guilford County Schools, formed newcomer institutions and experienced a rapid influx of immigration, quote-unquote, turning it into a hub for refugee resettlement. That was according to an October WUNC article. It says here, quote, I now have serious questions about how long any plans to close Mosley and open a newcomer's school have been in the works. Yeah, you should... You should wonder how long it's been in the works. I'm going to say since, oh, I don't know, 2020. Especially after hearing, it says Dr. Faust's staff disclose that his plans, that this plan rather, has been on the table since as early as 2021. Scalise added, quote, I'm also gravely concerned that Dr. Faust and his administration unilaterally decided to announce the closure of Mosley without seeking the Board of Education's prior approval. Discussions and decisions of this magnitude should be made, or had and made, by our elected Board of Education, not by staff behind closed doors, unquote. It's par for the course, frankly. Making decisions behind closed doors, away from the public, and even away from your own employees, that's commonplace. That's the way it goes. Remarkably disgusting. Seems illegal, doesn't it? Doesn't this all just seem illegal? Again, if you were doing this on your own private property, taking in individuals who have been trafficked by our own government officials into our country, and then you resettle those said individuals into a building that you were responsible for that was once a school, seems illegal. Seems like that's something people would have been arrested for not that long ago. Very strange. And it's not getting better. And it's not going to make the environment safer either. Speaking of unsafe environments, let's move on to jab things, shall we? And hospitals in particular. Our educator friend in Louisiana sent me this. This is rather interesting and uh, horrific, to say the least. But this is an article on conservativewomen.co.uk. And it specifically, again, has a lot to do with the hospital protocols that were taking place and what individuals were seeing all over the United States. And I want to pick up on this article in a particular location here where it starts to describe some of what, of course, we all know, but what was going on uh, throughout the United States in particular with these hospitals and their protocols and the settings on certain pieces of technology that nurses were using and what was happening with these quote-unquote COVID patients that they were receiving. Uh, before I get into this article, though, I do want to make mention of this. I played a piece of audio in the last war video at the very end of Peter McCullough openly stating again that individuals who have taken the shots and gotten ill and continue to do so, that those individuals have VADES or AIDS. This is a fact. You've heard me bring it up here almost since the very beginning. This is just a fact. And now you have Peter McCullough openly testifying about this, as I think he even did to Marjorie Taylor Greene not that long ago. And, uh, and again, he's, he's now saying it more frequently within interviews. 
Where he gets this wrong is when he brings up HIV, because that doesn't exist, and then he brings up variants or he brings up long COVID. That, that doesn't exist either. He just refuses to mention that poison permanently damages your DNA. And that when that happens, the cells that operate your entire immune system, like the, the white blood cells or killer T cells, that that count is lower in individuals who have broken DNA as a result of poison, as a result of having a compromised immune system. That's all he has to say. But he goes into, again, this virus talk and these variants and long COVID and what all that means. I mean, keep it simple. Keep it simple and keep it factual. The fact is, is that it, you, you have DNA, and when you poison it, you keep your body from doing the thing that it was born to do on its own. And then when it can't do that anymore, you have a compromised immune system, which means you have AIDS. And then the syndromes that come with it. One of many, of course, which is getting sick more frequently. That's part of it. And then all of the different symptoms that come with that. Instead of maybe just having the sniffles, you have the sniffles and pneumonia. Instead of having the sniffles and pneumonia, maybe you end up with cancer also. This is what's happening. This is what is going on. So there you go. Either way, again, it was an interesting piece of audio. And it's, again, I think a bit refreshing to finally hear him come out and start talking about the, the AIDS angle to all of this, because that's exactly what it is. And again, you've heard me play Deborah Burke's own words when she was on Chris Cuomo's show. Same thing. She openly stated it. But she's trying to trick people into believing that it's not the shots that are giving people AIDS and damaging people's DNA, that it's COVID. Nope. Sorry. Doesn't exist doesn't exist. Okay. Anyway, regarding this particular article, which is titled, if you're interested in reading the whole thing, the title is The Shocking Testimony of the COVID-19 Nurses. I'm going to pick it up a little ways down, and it says the following here. The book, titled What the Nurses Saw by Ken McCarthy, features interviews with nurses who worked in the killing fields of U.S. hospitals. An Army veteran, Aaron Marie Olswiski, qualified and practiced as a nurse in Florida. When New York became the American epicenter of COVID-19, she answered the urgent call for nurses from the city authorities. On arrival, Olswiski was surprised to be boarded into a luxury hotel, having no work assigned, but paid $10,000 weekly by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Clearly, the crisis was not as bad as portrayed on the news. $10,000 a week. Let that sink in. Eventually, Olswiski was posted to a large public hospital to find doctors and nurses following extraordinarily harmful protocols. Rather than the last resort, intubation and breathing machines were, were the primary treatment. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, acted as medical dictator, ordering 30,000 ventilators. As paycheck employees following administrative policy, doctors abandoned their Hippocratic oath, mistreating patients who walked into hospitals but left via the morgue. Consent, so fundamental to health care, was reduced to doctors telling patients that their only chance of survival 
was mechanical ventilation. According to Olswiski, the throughput was like a factory production line manufacturing the desired mortality data. Nurses normally reticent in challenging decisions made by doctors in a rigid hierarchical culture failed to put their patients first. They were complicit in state-sanctioned murder. This was particularly awful in the public hospitals of New York, where the majority of patients were poor and funded by Medicare. The federal system that incentivized use of ventilators, paying hospitals $39,000 per case. As patients were expected to perish, little care was given, and they lay unwashed on their, on their feces, it says. As soon as a corpse was carried out, the apparatus was used for the next admission. Gross. Another whistleblower, Nicole Serotek, if I'm saying that right, observed that in institutional power, rather, was rarely needed to ensure nurses' compliance with the COVID regime. The nursing staff policed themselves, making clear that any dissident would be ostracized, imperiling their professional career. It says, according to Kimberly Overton, a nurse in Nashville, nurses were told not to spend time near their patients' beds to reduce spread of the virus, despite the full exposure in wards dedicated to COVID cases. This was unnecessary cruelty. Patients were deliberately isolated, deprived of nutrition and water, and communication was impossible with nurses covered head to toe in PPE. Wards should have had a warning at the entrance to abandon hope. All ye who enter here. Overton observed that COVID was killing only people in hospital, not at home, nor among the homeless. The treatment regime was devised to end lives efficiently. Ventilators were key to this, as Overton described. Quote, in all my career, I have never seen the PEEP, positive end experience, expiratory pressure, settings set so high. Typically, we see it at about 5, and we were, seeing the, uh, we were seeing that pressure, rather, at 15. We were blowing people's lungs out, unquote. To sedate intubated patients, high doses of fentanyl were administered. It was standard practice to conduct a breathing test on patients after a day on the ventilator. They almost always failed because of the respiratory suppressant effect of fentanyl. But the most dubious intervention was remdesivir, declared by Anthony Fauci as the drug of choice for COVID sufferers. This antiviral was originally tested on Ebola cases, but over half died in the trial. For COVID, a rushed and incomplete trial was claimed as evidence of its efficacy, but the drug often caused kidney failure. Unfortunately, the article uses the derogatory term Nazi a couple of times. Not sure why. Either way, past all that nonsense, it says the NHS in Britain was bad, but American hospitals were much worse. The profit incentive was irresistible to unscrupulous administrators with incredibly high pay payments rather, for concluded cases, i.e. deaths. Another factor is that senior managers and clinicians of Democrat leanings were dealing with patients of lower socioeconomic status and populist Trump proclivities. It says uh, vaccination rates in the U.S. confirmed this political divide. Yuck.
again, this is one of those things that people cannot forget. We can't forget that this happened. And it makes you wonder, again, of all of the individuals who were paying attention to this as it was happening, how many people weren't? How many people were actually living through all of this and not paying attention to the, to the simple fact, rather, that this was happening in their own backyard, in their own town and city where they were living? I would venture to guess that a decent percentage of the population had no idea that this was happening. Absolutely no idea. It's beyond ridiculous. Uh, let, let me play this here. This is a piece of audio. It's a video, actually, on Dr. William Mackis's Substack page, COVID Intel. And this is a woman, Michelle Craig, who had a stroke after her first Pfizer shot within 20 minutes of receiving it. And this particular, again, th this video was taken on the, the Vaxxed bus, which I believe is located in Florida, and bouncing around Florida and taking the interviews from these individuals, uh, certainly funded or help, helping being funded by Children's Health Defense. And this was from December 7th of 2023. But this is about uh, almost eight minutes long. Give her story a listen here in three, two, one. Okay, we are live. Can you tell us your name, please? Michelle Craig. All right, this is one shot, one Pfizer shot. Yes, ma'am. All right. Why did you take the Pfizer? Why did you take the COVID shot? Um, honestly, I was against it at first, completely against it. And my family, everyone was saying, we're fine. We've had two. We're fine. We're fine. Stop being an overdramatic person. How was your health before you took the Pfizer? Fine. I was fine. Was absolutely fine. I rode quads with the boys. I, my daddy raised me. That's why I was. And I can't do it. <laughs> let's let's go back. Um, so my work was giving out five hundred dollars to get your series, your two shots. That's I, what you did. Yep. For a living. So you promoted getting the COVID. The COVID no, shot. no, no. I worked. No. no sorry. I worked in a appliance right. department. Uh, and uh, they said, we'll give you $500 if you get the shots. Okay. So my significant other has uh, emphysema, and I wanted to protect him. The technicians that were going in and out every day, all day. So, you know, um, I was afraid he would catch COVID. Okay. And he said, okay, let's get the shot. So I got the shot on my lunch hour. He took the day off. Within 30, well, within 15 minutes, I noticed that I was starting to slur my words. But we had masks on at that time in 21. And he is hard of hearing. He didn't hear me. I was mumbling. I said, I didn't feel well. We had just got the shot less than 20 minutes, less than 20 minutes. We went across the street to get something to eat. And I to work. And I noticed my face was starting to burn. And I looked in the mirror, see if the sun was beating on me. It wasn't. Within three hours, I was in the hospital. My left side just drooped. And I couldn't smile. It was like this gaping Joker smile. So um, they said that I had a transient it's TIA. It's, it's a stroke. Um, and then the uh, neurologist said to me, you know, um, well, I asked him, well, should I get the next one? He said, yeah, either that or die from COVID. 
you gotta be kidding me, I just had a stroke. But that's what they did. That's what they did. Two weeks later, I'm back in. Wait, so you, but you only had one Pfizer? One Pfizer. Did she had no more COVID shots? No. Just the one Pfizer? Okay, this is on. This is all within mm -hmm. the first day. Okay. That was the first day. Then within the next week and a half, I had another one. Stroke. Another stroke. My tongue was jetting to the side. My face was drooping. I couldn't, my balance was off. And uh, I couldn't hold my head upright without it wobbling to one side or the other. But um, eventually I got to the uh, Cleveland Clinic and they, uh, starting to go into one, they had uh, told me that I had the Guillain-Barre and I'm thankful that I don't have the paralytic portion of it, but my, my, my body just does this. Do you want some water? I'm no, you're okay. This minute. okay. <laughs> but then, then my body starts to get all whacked out and shaken. If I was standing right now, I would probably fall. Are you having an episode right yeah, now? Of course, yeah. Do you, do you need me to stop filming? Nah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'll be all right. I, what, am I, what else am I supposed to do? I know. Sorry. This is this is this is the life that I have now. I can't even have my grandbabies. Hold my babysit my grandbaby. <laughs> Sorry. But I'm alive, and God is good. <laughs> so if I can help somebody else not to get this, you know, I want I want people to know what it's like to live, you know. What is your advice to the people? I can't scream it loud enough. Don't please don't get don't put your babies through this. Don't do this. They can't they can't speak. You don't want them in hell. That's the truth. It's hell. I can't imagine how a child would feel. Because the first year and a half of it, I felt like a snail. Just crawling. I couldn't walk. I, your brain is like mush. Honestly. You don't, just, you know, don't do it. Please don't do this to these kids. Don't change. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. But <laughs> if I would have known... Would have never done it, and the media stopped it. Has this made you look at the whole vaccine schedule now? Uh, yeah, I have two grandbabies that are two years old, and they got how many? Seventy-eight shots now, something like that. It's ridiculous. It's disgusting. What 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 are they putting in it? They don't tell you. Nobody knows. They don't want to let you know. She actually has a Guillain Barre shaking episode in the middle of her talking. Again, at the beginning of the video, she's dead still, talking normally, no problem. And then out of nowhere, she starts shaking. Her whole body starts shaking. She's not a thin gal. She's a bit bigger, but she starts shaking. And then her voice starts shaking. And then again, it slows down a little bit. But right in the middle of it, I mean, just had this massive episode. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, with that said, here, of course, is what the government has planned, and this is in writing, and I wanted to bring this to your attention also. This is from the Federal Register, the Daily Journal of the United States Government, in their National Archives. It is titled, Notice of Declaration under the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act for Countermeasures Against Ebola Virus, 
and or Ebola disease and Marburg virus and or Marburg disease. This was put out by the Health and Human Services Department on November 27th of 2023. And it was amended as effective as January 1st of 2024. It says the summary here. The Secretary issues this amendment pursuant to Section 319F-3 of the Public Health Services Act to amend the Declaration for Countermeasures against Marburg virus and or Marburg disease to cover both Ebola viruses and Marburg viruses and republishes the declaration as amended. The amended republished declaration clarifies that the disease threat includes Ebola viruses and Marburg viruses, updates the title of the declaration, expands the covered countermeasures, and extends the effective time period. Now, this isn't good, as you might expect. And basically what they're doing is, is they're taking all of their COVID measures that they had in place, and they're simply adding Ebola and Marburg, if those are to be believed. They're adding that to this particular document regarding what they can and cannot do, but certainly what they have planned on doing if they decide to rename something and then all of a sudden say, well, what people are experiencing now is clearly Marburg virus. And they're going to say, well, here are our countermeasures and here's exactly what we have to do. Again, their, their countermeasures are exactly what they did the first time around. Lock people down. Get everybody to buy into it, force mask wearing, distancing, shot taking, and then of course entice everybody to receive said shots. And again, you know, are, are they going to pull this card this year? Are they going to pull it next year? I'm not sure. But I would say that again, they certainly want a lockdown again. I've been over it here before. Lots of other people have talked about it. I think that's a card that they want to play again. And just to revisit this very quickly, here are the countermeasures that they have in place. And now, of course, you can add Ebola and Marburg to that as well. It says, number one, any antiviral or other drug, any biologic, any diagnostic, any other device or any vaccine used to diagnose, mitigate, prevent, treat, cure, or limit the harm of Ebola or Marburg or the transmission of Ebola viruses, Marburg viruses, or a virus mutating therefrom, any device used in the administration of any such product and all components and constituent materials of any such product. That's just point number one, or countermeasure number one, I should say. Countermeasure two is any product to diagnose, mitigate, prevent, treat, or cure a serious or life-threatening disease or condition caused by a product described in Clause 1. So now they're authorizing the use of things to treat you for the things that they're actually giving you in their first countermeasure. That's hilarious. And then point three is, or countermeasure three, a product or technology intended to enhance the use or effect of a drug, biological product, or device described in Clause 1 or 2. Wow. They really want us dead, don't they? They really do. If one doesn't kill you, then we'll, uh, we'll give you something with countermeasure point 2 to treat counter, uh, countermeasure point 1. 
which will most certainly kill you, and if for some reason you're still alive, then we'll enact countermeasure point three, and we'll make sure and kill you off that way also. These people are disgusting. It then ends here, and it says, covered countermeasures must be, quote, qualified pandemic or epidemic products, or security countermeasures, quote unquote, or drugs, biological products, or devices authorized for investigational or emergency use, as those terms are defined in the PREP Act, the FD&C Act, and the Public Health Service Act. This is, again, not good. They openly state in this document, too, that they have absolutely no problem administering all of these measures in all of the places, specifically businesses and so on, uh, that certainly administered everything previously, including, again, very specific geographic areas, again, anywhere where they say this exists. doesn't even have to exist as long as they say that it does. But this is rather uh, hinky, I thought, along with the rest of it anyway. This is under their population section of this document, and it says the populations of individuals include any individual who uses or is administered the covered countermeasures in accordance with this declaration. It then says this, Liability immunity is afforded to manufacturers and distributors without regard to whether the countermeasure is used by or administered to this population. Liability immunity is afforded to program planners and qualified persons when the countermeasure is used by or administered to this population, or the program planner or qualified person reasonably could have believed the recipient was in this population. Translation, it sounds like they can scoop you up and take you away if they think you're sick. That's how I interpret this. They can cram a tube down your throat if they think you have something. They don't even have to prove it. They're openly stating in this document that they think that they have, or that they're saying they have, liability immunity. And they say it numerous times within this document, certainly as the document reaches the end here. Uh, effective time period, additional time period for coverage, more, more immunity, countermeasures in, injury compensation program. Good luck with that. And then again, other amendments that they have made, and there you go. Signed by Javier Becerra, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. So that is effective. That's a green light go. They're again adding Ebola and Marburg to their already draconian COVID measures. I'm telling you, they pull this card again, it's game on. It's game on. Who's going to go along with it and who won't? That's going to be the interesting part. Are they really going to lock people down, knowing that, again, some of the population was actually dumb enough to stay inside of their homes while the rest of us were going about our normal business and doing whatever we wanted on a day-in and day-out basis? Are they really going to lock people down? Are they going to bring in the National Guard and go street to street to make sure that everybody's staying in their house? I'm telling you what, it's worth considering. It's worth considering. Just saying. They seem like they want to pull this again. I don't think they got the, uh, I don't think they got the compliance. I mean, they got a lot of compliance the last time. 
But this one right here, this would this would kick the game up to a completely different level. So time's going to tell on this one, but the document is right here. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will uh, print out this PDF if I can do it, and I'll put it on my website under the Government Documents tab. It'll be the most recent link on that giant list, on that giant numbered list, under the Government Documents tab on my webpage. Okay. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, again, Crumbly Trial uh, commences again on Monday on the Law and Crimes Trials channel on YouTube if you're interested in watching. And I will catch you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless. <laughs>